The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Podcast, presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Welcome to this week's edition of the Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we've got the latest AV news. I bring you behind-the-scenes details of the gadgets in my life this week. And Phil Hinton hosts another Home Cinema Roundtable discussion. This week's this week's audio-visual news. Panasonic's new kit for 2007 is revealed. LG land another combo shocker. BBC says Freeview HD must happen. First generation Blu-ray will be defunct. HD DVD slashes its prices. And Star Wars comes to London. We start this week with news from Panasonic on some of its most anticipated products for 2007. First to catch the eye is their new SC-PTX7 home theatre in a box solution. The unit will come with a 2.1 speaker system, which is capable of pseudo-surround sound, a 1080p upscaling DVD deck which also plays CDs, and a built-in 80GB hard drive unit. You'll be able to stream music to the unit via Bluetooth or USB, as well as download music to the hard drive. However, you'll not be able to copy files from the unit to another source. The PTX7 will be available in the summer for around £800. Due from April are Panasonic's new 1080p plasma screens, complete with Viera Link. These sets have impressed those lucky enough to catch a sneak glance at recent trade shows and boast the new V-Real 2 processing, which promises darker blacks and subtler colour gradation. Also joining the lineup in May is Panasonic's 1080p LCD range, which will feature new technologies like Motion Picture Pro, which promises sharper moving images without drag, and Intelligent Scene Controller, which controls the backlight depending on the picture being shown. This should allow for far better black levels and shadow detail in low-light surroundings. Hopefully we'll have further details from Panasonic on these items very soon. Failure to launch Freeview HD in the UK at the digital switchover will cost the country billions and may even delay HD broadcasts free-to-air by at least 18 years. The BBC, in a response to Ofcom's public consultation on the digital dividend review, argues that public service broadcasters should be allowed to develop free-to-air, universally available high-definition channels. They also state that the findings of independent consultants indicate that the loss to the UK in private and social value is likely to range from £4.1 billion to £15.6 billion. To ensure its long-term future viability and to enable it to compete with other platforms, Freeview must be able to offer a critical mass of HD services, said the Beeb. There is not enough capacity on the existing six multiplexes after switchover to carry this critical mass without removing existing services or eroding their quality. Furthermore, there is no business model for free-to-air HD on DTT at this stage that could enable free-to-air broadcasters to sustain likely auction prices. The BBC advocates that a minimum of one-third of the digital dividend due to be reaped when the analogue spectrum is sold off should be allocated to public service broadcasters to enable them to launch a strong free-to-air offer. At present, one DTT multiplex can provide three HD channels. 
the broadcaster also states that such a move would kickstart a migration to more efficient MPEG-4 receivers which could over time be used by standard definition services and greatly improve spectrum efficiency on DTT. Mark Thompson, the BBC's Director General, said that high definition is already a consumer reality and it's one that really adds value for audiences. It's a technological advance that he thinks can and should be available as far as possible to all viewers of digital television, whether they watch through cable, satellite or an aerial, and whether they choose to pay or receive their services for free. If pure market mechanisms are applied to the whole digital dividend, his fear is that it will jeopardise the success of universal access to high-quality public service broadcasting, free-to-air on all main platforms, and also lead to an erosion of the digital terrestrial platform and its ability to compete. Ofcom are likely to publish their final plans for the switchover and sale of the Spectrum soon. We wait with bated breath to see the results. In high-definition DVD news, Toshiba Europe has announced yet another HD DVD player due in May and priced at £499. The HD EP10 will offer all the existing features found on the company's entry-level HD E1 player but also adds a 1080p output. Olivier van Wijnendaal, Toshiba's HD DVD guru, stated that Toshiba want customers to experience the highest DVD resolution currently available at a price that's right for the market. Sounds fair enough. With three quality standalone players and more than 100 titles available in Europe by the end of quarter 1 2007, Toshiba believe that the launch of the HD EP10 is another significant step towards establishing HD DVD as the natural successor to DVD. The player will also upscale standard def DVDs to 1080p and can decode Dolby Digital Plus, Dolby True HD and DTS HD audio formats. And not to be outdone with new HD player news, LG have announced the release of a hybrid Blu-ray HD DVD recorder in the US this autumn. The model will be the first to play and burn to Blu-ray media, while offering playback compatibility for HD DVD discs. The surprise announcement was made by LG's Corporate VP of Public Affairs John Taylor at the 37th Annual International Recording Media Association Forum. Taylor says LG can't meet demand for its first-generation Super Multi Blue Hybrid Blu-ray HD DVD player. Well, there's a mouthful. And demand has surprised the company, despite the $1,200 asking price. Taylor says that despite criticism when the product, which uses a single blue laser diode to read both BD and HD DVD software, was unveiled at this year's CES, LG has been encouraged by dealer and consumer reaction. Other brands will no doubt be watching very closely and looking to release their own versions of the combination player soon. And staying with the HD disc battle, research has shown that neither Blu-ray or HD DVD will ever replace DVD as a home format. So believes Jim Bottoms of UK research company Understanding and Solutions. He predicts that Blu-ray and HD DVD will at best only grow the packaged media market by 15-20%. to 20%. However, Bottoms does envisage that HD DVD player prices could fall to $400 by the end of the year, dropping to $100 by 2010. The AV podcast team, however, think that this target will be realised a lot earlier than predicted, with rumours that Shinko's first HD DVD player will debut for just $150 by the end of this year. 
and if you own a first-gen Blu-ray player, it looks like it will be defunct by the end of this year. This might sound like a PR spin for the other side of the war, but in fact the Blu-ray Disc Association is responsible for possibly killing off the first-gen machines, which, we might add, cost a small fortune on launch. All BD players going on sale after October 31st must offer fully functioning BD Java in order to deliver PIP interactivity. Frustration comes from the fact that BD releases have failed to compare to current generation HD DVD discs. The inability of Blu-ray players to run BD Java and go online with BD Live is frustrating studios eager to build next generation functionality into their products. Unfortunately, this attempt to effectively finalise the format may be coming too late for the format's early adopters. Currently, even the PlayStation 3 is unable to offer PIP, picture-in-picture, picture, via BD Java, and no standalone designs have the ability to go online with BD Live. First-generation players can have their firmware updated via disk. However, such updates alone may not be enough to maintain hardware compatibility with advanced PIP platters. Machines need a minimum of 256 meg of persistent memory storage to run the feature. Players with an Ethernet connection for online interactivity are required to have 1 gig of memory to store and buffer downloaded content. This is an example of companies trying to bring a format to market when it's not even finalised. At least the HD DVD camp had a specification laid down before launch. It looks like the BD spec will not be finalised until at least June 2007, if then. So if you're amongst the early adopters, it looks like you might have to upgrade sooner than you think. Staying with HD disc devices and in light of the PS3 launch and the fact it's struggling to leave stores in the numbers predicted, Toshiba has taken the opportunity to lower its prices on standalone HD DVD machines to tempt Joe Public. Announced to come into effect on the 1st of April in the US, the company will slash $100 off its two entry models, the HDA1 and the HDA10 and take a further $200 off its HDA2 flagship model. This means that the top-of-the-line machine will cost exactly the same as the PS3 at full retail price and HD DVD will again create a 2 to 1 price difference to the nearest first generation standalone BD player. And don't forget that those BD players will be defunct by the end of the year. We wait to see what price cuts will happen in the UK. And finally this week, if you're crazy about all things Star Wars, you'll want to go and visit the largest exhibition of Star Wars props and models ever assembled. Launching at County Hall Westminster London on May the 5th, the show, which runs till September the 1st, sprawls over 30,000 square feet and has already been seen by more than a million visitors in Japan, France and Portugal. On view will be 280 original film props, vehicles, costumes and models covering the entire Star Wars saga. Also featured are interactive exhibits and activities including Jedi training and a green screen simulation that puts visitors into a Star Wars sequence. Other items of interest from the Lucasfilm archives include a life-size Naboo N1 Starfighter, an original model of Yoda, the original Darth Vader costume and mask, Darth Maul's costume and Anakin Skywalker's pod racer. To find out more on this exciting event, go to www.starwarstheexhibition.com For up-to-the-minute AV discussion and hardware reviews, visit avforums.com With more gadgets than Q Branch. The name is Bond, James Bond. 
This is the AV Podcast. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that each week uh, I tell you uh, about a gadget or gadgets that have impressed me this week. And I've got to tell you about something called Zypad, which again was brought courtesy of the Gadget Show. And so a big shout out to them. I won't tell you too much as usual because I'd rather that you watch the show. Uh, after all, they do all the hard work to get these exclusive devices. But I will tell you this much. The Zypad is a really cool little computer. It's so small that it's the size of a rather large bangle or bracelet. And that's what it does. It's a wrist-mounted computer that sits on your wrist. It uses Windows CE and it possesses a 400 megahertz processor. And it you know, has all the functionality of a, of a, of a pretty fully-blown PDA and then some. I mean, this thing is pretty quick. It's got Wi-Fi, it's got Bluetooth, it's got an accelerometer on board, which means that um, when you put your hand by your side, you can program it to uh, go into standby mode. And then when you put the thing in front of your, in front of your face, like you would a watch for example it then boots up again it's it's really clever but the possibilities for this device in terms of location based gaming just makes the mind boggle i saw a game which again was featured on the gadget show last series i think called mob zombies i saw that at next fest in uh, new york this year and um, mob zombies is is was basically kind of cobbled together using uh, you know cassiopeia or something and a gps unit and the idea was that um, you, you had a kind of top-down view of all these zombies trying to attack you in the center of the screen. And you had to kind of run around to actually uh, avoid the zombies, like physically run around. So, you know, you wouldn't want to play it on a busy high street. And these location-sensitive games are becoming really popular. There's been several iterations, including a full-life a full sort of life scale version using virtual reality of Pac-Man in which you run around with a GPS in your backpack and actually physically see Pac-Man in front of you in a kind of augmented virtual view what this Zypad which retails I'm ashamed to say over a thousand pounds that's the only drawback what what this offers is the opportunity for a few developers to get hold of some units and maybe drive the price down and and develop some location-based gaming so that we're all kind of running around in city centres playing games. But obviously its um, its uses go far beyond that. It's used for emergency services, the police, the military, that sort of thing. But a consumer version is available for those of us rich enough to buy one, which I'm afraid isn't me. Oh, man, I've got loads of gadgets, loads of things to tell you about. I did a, a seminar at the Ideal Home exhibition last week, The House of the Future, it was entitled. I was given carte blanche and an audience of a few hundred people to just um, natter on about where we're all going to be in 15 years' time. And I broke down the average house into uh, the sort of constituent rooms, home office, uh, bedroom, lounge... Uh, I also talked about certain green technologies and so on and so forth. Uh, but what I think will be most interesting to AV Podcast listeners are two pieces of kit. One, believe it or not, a kettle, and the other one, a speaker. Uh, I'll start with the kettle. It's from Tfal. Um, no jokes about me being a slaphead. And the concept is that it drastically reduces the amount of time it takes to boil a cup of tea. Get this. What do you reckon a normal kettle takes? About two and a half minutes? Well, this baby from Tfal, the uh, model number of which I've forgotten, so you'll have to Google it. Three seconds. Three seconds to boil a, uh, well, it's a cup of water, all right? You have a kind of kettle-sized reservoir, but what it outputs is uh, a boiling hot cup of water into a cup. But you could do two in a row, which would take six seconds. It's truly remarkable. I haven't found out how it works yet because I lost the box, but uh, I'm pretty sure it uses some form of uh, molecular manipulation. 
with the molecules inside the water, rubbing them against each other to cause friction. That's my guess. A little bit like um, some sort of electromagnetic induction devices. Uh, but anyway, very, very cool. The other thing I featured, and in fact bought, uh, because I was so impressed, uh, was uh, a speaker stroke, well, lovely piece of artwork um, from a company called SoundArt. You can find them at soundartuk.com. What they have is some state-of-the-art flat speaker technology, a sort of honeycomb structure over which sound uh, supposedly flows, and despite being flat, produces a sound that uh, I'm told audiophiles wouldn't blink at, although uh, most people listening to this podcast will know more about that than I do. What I got for my, uh, well, I'm not sure how much, but it was over a £1,000, is uh, a, a large photographic print on canvas uh, and a subwoofer. Okay, and then the company arrive at your house. They drill out the wall, put the cable in. So all you end up with is, is just a lovely print, and inside it are are two speakers, uh, and then the subwoofer just sits on the floor below it. The sound quality is absolutely fantastic, and if you've not already covered it on the AV forums, I would entreat you to do so. A lovely piece of artwork, something that um, you know visitors to the house uh, are already commenting on, and I just love it when I turn on the uh, the stereo. Oh, and the bass woofer, by the way, comes with um, an iPod port, so uh, you can whack your iPod in there and you don't have to worry about wiring it up to your hi-fi or whatever. Anyway, very, very cool piece of kit. And something else I just me- must mention, although I'll probably go into this in more detail in another podcast, I took delivery of um, my first new PC for years. It's one that's going to be featured next week on The Gadget Show, and it's, um, it's by a company called vadim.co.uk, V-A-D-I-M.co.uk. They make bespoke, tailor-made gaming rigs for people with enough money to spend on a serious piece of kit. This baby is the Ferrari of gaming computers. I didn't go for the, the absolute top whack machine. You know, I could have paid five to ten thousand pounds for that. I paid just under three grand, which you know I know isn't a figure to bulk at. It, it's a lot of money, and I'm not going to start patronising people. You know, it's a lot of money. You know whether you can afford it or not. Fortunately, I can, and I need to be at the cutting edge when it comes to gaming because of my job. At least that's what I told my girlfriend. Uh, although I also told her that it would do filters on her Photoshop work much quicker, which is a good line to use if you're ever trying to get one past your other half. But the point being, it's just awesome. It looks like a big evil alien, and I actually think that unless I play games rigorously on it, it might get bored and actually attempt to take over the world. And if it did, that would be a disaster because it's probably powerful enough and intelligent enough to do so. More on that later. Um, I'll give you the spec and stuff in another podcast. Anyway, that's it from me. The biggest news and the best, best, best reviews. Best reviews. Hard, tiring work. You're listening to the AV Podcast. Hi, everybody. This is John Dawson from Arcan. Um, among the other things I do, I also work quite closely um, with the Audio Engineering Society in the UK. Um, the Society's members are responsible for most of the innovations um, that we've had over the last century um, in audio. Um, we've got a conference coming up in Cambridge, New Hall in Cambridge, on the 11th and 12th of April, which may be of interest to some of you. It's called Illusions in Sound, the Application of Psychoacoustics to Audio. It's unashamedly academic, um, but it will look at all the things that happen with modern stereo and surround systems. Um, and we have academics from all over Europe who are experts in this field coming to talk to us and to play some demonstrations. Um, psychoacoustics is everything in this business. Um, how you get sound and reproduce it properly or with the illusion of being in particular spaces. And we'll be discussing that in enormous depth 
Um, we'll be looking at both acoustic spaces, uh, sound reverberation systems, um, ambisonics, surround sound in radio, something techie called wave field synthesis. Um, and we have lecturers including Bob Stewart from Meridian, um, Mark Waldrop from AX Records, who produces the DVDA high-quality records that maybe you have heard of. Um, several people on the ambisonics techniques, including people from Nimbus, uh, Meridian, and elsewhere, and a whole bunch of academics um, who can go into things. So anybody that is seriously interested in the subject, including journalists, people designing product, and interested consumers, can come to this. Um, it's a few hundred pounds, but it's not crazy money. And you can find details at www.aes.org forward slash UK conference. Or you can email uk at aes.org for details. Thanks. The highest definition. definition. This is the AV Podcast. This week's roundtable discussion, hosted by Phil Hinton. So it's time for yet another roundtable here on the Home Cinema edition of the podcast. And with us tonight on the panel is Robert Toomey. Hello, Robert. Hello there, Phil. We also have Seth Gecko. Hi, Phil. And uh, joining us this week is Gordon from Convergent AV. Gordon's finally made it along. Hello, Gordon. Good evening, everybody. And uh, rounding off our roundtable tonight is John Carlo. Hi, John. Hi, Phil. How are you doing? Tonight's subject, we thought because we got Gordon here, we would discuss scalers and scaling. Basically, what the technology is, why we should use it, and so on. So I think we should get started by just describing what scaling is and why we should use it. And I think the best person to start with would be uh, Gordon. So, Gordon, do you want to come in with this one? Um, what is scaling uh, and why do you use it? Well, scaling is basically just taking one signal resolution and turning it into another signal resolution. Uh, sometimes you might change the refresh rate, do all the things, but that's basically what it is. It's taking one thing and turning it into something else. And why you would use it is because the resolution of your display is probably not the same resolution as the type of signals that you want to watch. So something has to turn it into something else. There we go. go. Pretty simple. (laughs) Simple and straight to the point. But um, I suppose in today's uh, market where we've got more and more HD-ready panels being sold to the general public, scaling is definitely going to be something which people are going to come across now that maybe haven't even considered it in the the past. So um, what kind of things should should people be looking for if they're going to buy a flat panel and and maybe running resolutions which aren't uh, native to that panel's resolution? When you're looking at uh, fixed pixel displays or new TVs nowadays, I think folk need to realise that uh, all of these displays actually have scalers inside them. The resolution of most uh, LCD TVs or plasma displays or projectors will be generally a PC resolution or they might be an HD TV resolution like 720p or 1080p. But the bulk of the material which we still watch is uh, standard definition interlaced, which is 576i or 480i. So all of these displays have to have something inside them which can turn these signals into the amount of pixels that they have. So all of these displays already have scalers in them. The question is, how good are they at doing the job? And uh, generally, they're okay. They're, most TVs are made to cost. Uh, and generally, you can do a better job elsewhere. But there's actually much more to it than that. Rather than thinking of it as a, as a scaler, you need to think of it as a video processor, something which manipulates the, the video and can do all sorts of other tricks to other than just 
turning it into a dif- different resolution. So guys, um, I think all of us here have uh, high-definition displays, whether it be projectors or fixed panels and so on. Do you rely on the video processor inside, or have you got scaling options which are outside the, the machine? And I'll uh, aim this one at John. Yeah, um, I bought a Cristalio scaler, basically. Um, I have, a, obviously, a, a couple of panels. Well, I have one Pioneer Plasma, and I have a, a 1080p projector. Now, the brilliant thing with that is that, obviously, I can I can do all my video switching via this scaler, via uh, the Cristalio, um, and it can, also, it can also output the resolutions that I want to, obviously, watch um, the 1080p projector, um, most of my stuff goes through it as interlaced 480i, 5.76 on standard definition, but then it's uh, upscaled in the in the scaler, and obviously put through to uh, you know my displays. So yeah, I do. So what research did you do, John, before you went out and and I mean the the Cristalli is a lot of money to spend yeah. on the scaler. So what kind of research did you do into that, and and how did you? Uh, reach the point where you thought, well, I'm going to go for for an, an expensive outboard scaler. Well, basically, I took up, um, I looked on the forums, obviously AV forums, and had a good search on what was going on in regards to scalers. Um, obviously, Lumigen is uh, something that um, Gordon he he knows quite well, and I have had experience of, um, but unfortunately, it it didn't have all the outputs that I required. So you know, display to do two displays. Um, there was the DVDO that was also coming out, the VP50. Now that obviously was uh, quite a nice, um, look nice, new new bit of kit. Um, does does quite well on what what it says it does. Um, but again, it was the outputs HDMI that was limited to one output. Um, the Cristalio seemed to do everything that I needed. So you know, after doing some research and. Um, obviously, talking to a few people, um, the Cristalio, yes, it was expensive, but it it does it does the job for me basically. What about the different resolutions and um, scaling up to your displays? I mean, was it trial and error for you, or did you do a lot yeah. of research into that? No, I mean, well, obviously, um, I had some help from a friend um, who actually knows a bit about scalers, um, so I did have some sort of background knowledge from someone else there, but. It generally, I mean, the outputs uh, on the on the Sony Pearl is uh, it accepts 1080p at 50, 60 hertz, and you know, I've, it, it basically does the job very, very well. It scales it, 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 it seems to clean the image up, and it's just sort of increased the performance um, of you know the, the video, the film-based material that I have. Gordon, if I could come back to you for a second, sure, um, sure. I, I think the thing that's going to um, confuse a lot of people. Um, when we talk about scalers, is all the different resolutions, all the different refresh rates and so on. Yes. And we could obviously talk all night about what's best for what and so on. But just to give people a, a, a quick roundup to, to get their knowledge up to speed, um, can you explain in, in your experience what the best resolutions usually are? Is it usually just what the, the panel's native is? Stuff like pixel mapping and um, refresh rates as well. I mean, we see a lot of talk of 24 and 48, 72. Can you quickly explain that? Yeah, well, I'll try. I'll try and uh, explain a few things. I don't want to bore people too much because it's quite complicated. First thing I'd like to say is that Giancarlo's um, his experience by Castellio too. That's a, a classic example of um, the compl- complexity of these devices because they are application specific. You need to have an understanding of what it is you're trying to achieve so you get the right tool for the job. You can't just say that one product's great, one product's poor. They are very much uh, 
it's glue that binds together these systems. You have to understand what you want to put in and what you want to get out and how you're going to use the thing. So uh, everybody can end up with different products. That doesn't mean that one person is right and one person is wrong. And in the interests of open disclosure, it should be mentioned that I am the distributor for Lumigen, who are a video processor manufacturer. But I'll try, I'll try not to speak about Lumigen. I'll try and just talk about scalers in general and video processing. So the, the video processors, as I said, you know, they'll take in standard definition signals and they'll rescale them to uh, any resolution that you want. Uh, how to determine what resolution you want to get out of a video processor, the first thing to do is to look at your display and see what resolution it is. Generally, the school of thought is that you want to make sure that you bypass as much of the processing inside your display as possible. And to do that, you generally you would be trying to address each pixel individually. So if you have a 720p DLP projector, for instance, you would want to have a scaler which could output 1280 by 720 pixels. And for refresh rates, you would want to have complementary refresh rates to the signal going in. Uh, uh, how do you work out what a complementary refresh rate is? Well, the way to look at it is this. We live in a 50 hertz country, so all of our PAL sources, our standard definition TV, is 50 hertz. It's a 50 hertz refresh rate. To avoid any motion artifacts in the image, you would want to output the signal from the scaler at 50 hertz. So it's 50 hertz in, 50 hertz out. Bingo. Job. You know, all done. Well and good. If you have a Region 1 DVD, that's for America. It's a 60 hertz country. It's designed to play back at 60 hertz. Generally, you would play that back at 60 hertz. But and this is where it starts getting a bit confusing, and we start to go back into other facets of what video processing is. You need to step further back than just the country of origin and the 50 and 60 hertz. If you really, really, would really want to optimize things, you need to look at the source material itself, and an actual the recording of the material that's gone onto the disk or gone into the broadcast. And you need to look and work out, okay, was this material recorded with a film camera? Was it recorded with a video camera? Or was it uh, originated by PC graphics? Because complementary refresh rates for video and film and PC graphics may actually not be 50 or 60 hertz. They may be something else. And the reason they may be something else is that film, the film that's recorded you know, on a film camera and then turned into video for broadcast, film records at 24 frames per second. Call it 24 hertz. And what happens is that the 24 frames that you get in film, when it's turned into video for broadcast, it goes through a system called Telecine, and it gets turned into uh, interlaced video, usually, for a standard definition. And what happens is, in, in Britain, okay, 50 hertz countries, the 24 pictures are divided into half-resolution pictures. So they're divided in two, into two sets of half-resolution pictures. The first field, it's called, will have lines 135 of the image, and the second field will have lines 24680 of the image. When you do that, you get 48 half-resolution pictures. Our TV systems broadcast interlaced, so that's great. So we've got, you know, we've got the odd lines and the even lines to broadcast. Unfortunately, if it's running at 48 hertz at this point, it needs to get to 50, so what happens is they, they speed it up. So they speed it up by 4%, so it starts running at 50 hertz or 50 fields per second. If you had a clever video processor, it would be constantly analyzing the signal it's getting 
and it would be looking to, to make a determination of whether the original source material is from video camera, is it from a progressive source like film, uh, and if so, is it 24 frames per second or whatever. And if it is, it would try and recreate the original 24 pictures and then play them back. So what happens in America, this is where it starts getting complicated, where it's not just 50 or 60 hours. What happens in America is they do the same thing. You've got your 24 pictures, interlace them into half-resolution pictures. You've got 48, but they run at 60 hertz. So what they do in America is they can't speed it up because it, everyone would sound like Mickey Mouse. So what they do is they get the first picture and they show the odd lines and the even lines. Then the next picture, they'll show the odd lines and the even lines. Then they might show the even lines again. Then the next picture, they'll show the odd lines and the even lines. Then the next picture, odd lines, even lines, even lines again. And what happens is you get this two fields, then three fields from a picture. This two, three, two, three, two, three repeated sequence. And every fourth field is repeated, which gives you 12 more. So in a second, instead of having 48 fields, you have 60, which is how they get to their 60 hertz for broadcast. Now, that actually creates a motion artifact because you're seeing one one field uh, twice, which gives the impression that the camera is staying in one position in a, in a, a pan, a pan across a, a, a road or something like that, across a building. It gives the impression that the camera is staying in one position longer than it should. And your brain sees that as a micro judder, a stutter. Uh, uh, what clever video processors can do is they can actually reconstitute the original 24 pictures. And once they've got the original 24 pictures, you can play it back at 24 hertz or 48 hertz or 72 hertz and that will give you smooth motion. So that's a, a complement, that's a, an ideal complementary refresh rate but it only works for stuff which is recorded on film and that is a, from a 60 hertz interlaced source which generally is region 1 DVD but of course now we also have uh, HD DVD same same thing, it's just you've got 1080i instead of 480i, but you can clever video processors can do the same job with that. The problem you have is that we've obviously we've got our 720p DLP projector we're talking about and we've worked out okay, we want to send it twelve eighty by seven twenty at fifty hertz or sixty hertz. Now we're also talking, well, maybe maybe we can send it seven twenty p at uh, twenty four hertz or at forty eight hertz. The problem you have is that generally there are very, very few displays which will actually work at those complementary refresh rates. And quite often it won't even be, uh, even if they do, it might not even be mentioned in the instruction manual that will do that. So it's one of these things that you have to try once you've got it. But as a rule, 50 and 60 hertz, yep, that's pretty much standard throughout the world. And if you can address the panel at its native resolution of 720p or 1080p or if it's an XG panel of 1024 by 768, Panasonic plasmas 1366 by 768. If you can do that, then you can bypass as much of the video processing as possible, and that's a good way to uh, get the best image quality. Just move on to the the other guys, Gordon. That's fascinating stuff. That's probably um, gotten a lot of people up to speed as to where we are at this moment in time with scaling. Just pass on to the other guys. We've got Seth and uh, Robert. Do either of you use scaling in your systems? And if so, what kind of scaling do you use? Well, at the moment, I am currently only using the internal scaler in my projector. I've considered the idea of getting an external one, but unfortunately at the moment, cost-wise, it would be too prohibitive for me. Because, um, well, from reading the forums, you get the idea that if you spend too little, you're unlikely to get a scale that's going to really do much good over what's already in the machine. So at the moment I'm just feeding the images 
but via components, my HDMI cable broke straight to the projector from a DVD player. Um, I do seem to notice uh, motion judder. I'm assuming that is to do with what Gordon was talking about with the 60 hertz. Yeah, quite possibly. Uh, quite possibly. You you find that uh, uh, the good things to watch to see it uh, are uh, things like Gladiator, Harry Potter, if you've got Region 1 DVDs of that. Something with a nice smooth pan, you can usually see the, the motion judder. The, because of the low, what you call temporal resolution of film, where there's only 24 pictures a second, you do get uh, what appears to be judder, but it's a uh, it's just that there aren't enough pictures to make the motion look smooth. If the if the pan's fast enough, you, there aren't enough samples in time to make it look smooth. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that in in actual fact in the UK, uh, we notice the motion judder more from 60 hertz sources. In America, they tend not to notice it as much because they're so used to it. But yeah. because we're used to smooth motion because of the, of the 50 in the 50 hertz you know, film based stuff, as I said, they just speed it up, so you still get two two fields from one picture, two fields, two fields, two fields. Mm. So you actually get smooth motion or smoother motion, but we have the problem that the film is running at the wrong speed. Yes, yeah, uh, so voices go up a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's well, and yeah, a lot of it's pitch corrected now, but it's uh, it's six and a half a dozen. Both of them are wrong. The future is HD, DVD, and Blu-ray, where uh, if we can extrapolate the original. Uh, 24 frames, then we're basically back to what you see at the cinema, because what you see at the cinema is 24, well it's actually 48 hertz, because it's the 24 pictures a second. What happens is the, the film goes into the gate, and then a shutter comes down and you see each picture twice at the cinema, otherwise you would really would see flicker. So, there you go. Is I mean, Gordon, is this also um, dependent on the screen size as well? You know, not just the actual like 42-inch plasma, but say on a projector, a seven-foot, a six-foot, an eight-foot, a nine-foot, would that be also you'd you see it bigger, more on a bigger screen um, than a smaller one? You might well, you might notice the. I don't. I don't know if you'd necessarily notice the. Well, probably you would notice the judder more uh, on a, a bigger screen or relative to how close you are to the screen. Uh, yeah. I think this is the thing. What you what you do find uh, is that if you sit cl the closer you sit to the screen, the more you see the artifacts, and the higher the resolution screen you have, the more the artifacts get amplified by poor scaling and video processing. So, with every year that goes by, screens and displays are going to get higher and higher resolutions, and the more that happens, the more important it is that you scale the signal well. Otherwise, it's just going to look a mess. And I see that all the time now. I go and see people who've got you know, 1080p displays and, you know, you put on a, an NTSC DVD or watch, uh, you know, EastEnders or you know, someone's house and the quarry's on and it's unpleasant. Yeah. Because you're starting to see all all the problems uh, just getting amplified by the poor processing. Gordon, this sort of brings us on to the next subject, which is obviously the downsides to scaling. And I guess um, it's all going to come down to what the scaler's capable of and, and, and the chips that are in the scalers. Is, is, would that be a, a correct assumption? I prefer not to talk about the chips which are inside devices because a lot of it's got to do with implementation. You know, you can get um, a pile of products that all use the same processing chip but they all look different because it all depends on what, what parameters have been tweaked in what ways, what bits are turned on and what bits are used or not used. But the, the problem, well, what, the problems with scaling are that as soon as you scale anything, you uh, will soften the image. As soon as you uh, do any noise reduction or anything like that on any image, you instantly lose detail. Do any, so you're always, 
uh, losing detail uh, somehow. And it's a question of how well you can do the scaling to not lose the detail. I think, uh, having said that, that makes it sound like oh, any scaling's bad, but in actual fact that, that also isn't necessarily true. Uh, scaling can help uh, mitigate certain other artifacts. Uh, as I said, there's, there are some there are some sorts of uh, video noise, for instance, uh, which can be removed by uh, good video processing, and sometimes the removal of that noise is better than leaving it there, because it can be more unpleasant to see it than to not see it. That that's basically it. The, the 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 problems with scaling is that if it's not done properly, it's it's a bit like it can add, like turning up the sharpness control in your TV. Those are the sort of artifacts that poor scaling can can add. Yeah. The uh, the add ringing and glowing edges to things, because the the sort of compression artifacts which we see in our digital broadcasts also tend to manifest themselves around areas of high contrast, the edges of of thing, you know, people and things like that. Poor scaling ampl amplifies it; it makes it worse. I think in one of the podcasts, Neil was talking about um, how important it was to adjust the sharpness control in your display, because if you don't, it amplifies all these artifacts. Well, it's the same thing with scaling; they all they all become a cumulative problem. But the other, the other thing about scalers, which is, I mean, we're, we're talking about deinterlacing and scaling, and deinterlace fundamentally deinterlacing is important. The, th the thing about the thing about scalers is they don't just deinterlace and scale. You need to think about a, a scaler. As I said, it's it's a bit like the glue that binds together a video system. Scalers will generally have inputs for analog sources, and they'll have inputs for digital sources, and they'll be able to output those sources either digitally or or analog, depending on whether or not they're allowed to. So they're like switchers as well. So in a way, they allow you to instead of running multiple cables to your display, you can run one cable to your display from your video processor, and it's the hub, and everything goes into it, and everything that goes into it, it can hopefully improve. What you tend to find is that displays themselves will have uh, issues, perhaps with colorometry or with uh, grayscale or uh, things called gamma, which is the the relationship between the signal going in and how much light comes off the screen. And quite often your display might not have adjustments to fix any of these errors, but a video processor quite possibly will. You might find that the sources themselves might have uh, problems. And obviously in, in most people's sources there are, well, there are so much of brightness and contrast controls and, all, you know, and chroma delay controls, but generally they don't. And if the source itself has issues, then video processors, some of them, have the ability to try and uh, compensate for the errors in the source. So they can be used as uh, major calibration tools in order to fix source and display problems. And that can be very, very helpful. Yeah, I mean, they have, um, you know, test patterns you can put on and things like that, which is, which is helpful. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, you know, in calibrating. So it, it's got its features, which are which are important that could be used for that purpose. Absolutely, Crystallia 2 is a classic example. It's got a slew of uh, very, very good test patterns on it, and you can use the test patterns. And this is well, I think well, I get people contacting me, and there's also lots of questions in the forums. Uh, I think there was even one the other day about you know how do I adjust the color on my uh, display in my video processor? And what you need, obviously, is you need to have some sort of reference. And products like the Crystallio and other products, like the ones I do, they have test patterns built into them, which will emit. They're like test pattern generators. They'll check out, ch chuck out 
exactly the correct signal levels and you can use that to uh, set the levels on your display and then you now have a calibrated chain you know that the, the display is set correctly for the correct incoming signal levels and then you can stick your test disk or some form of test pattern into your source and you then know that you can uh, you know that as long as what's coming out the back of the scale is correct you're going to get the correct pattern displayed on your projector and you can then use the scaler to compensate for all the problems in the bit in front of it in the source yeah. they're clever devices but the more clever they are the more complicated they are and uh, as uh, they say with great power comes great responsibility it's quite easy to really really mess things up if you don't know what you're doing and I guess this is um, what a lot of people come to the AV forums for they, they come for information on, on how to do these these types of things and how to set a scaler up pro- properly and so on. Gordon, um, you're, you're the resident expert here on on scalers. Um, what kind of directions would you push people in if if they have questions like that? Well, the first thing I would say is that if you're if you're going to buy a video processor of any of any description, you want to have a demonstration of it, and you want to speak to a dealer who understands what they what they are, and can help you pick the right tool for the job. Okay, once you've done that, I would hope that any dealer would attempt to set the thing up for you. But if they don't, then the forum's a good place to start. Just simple things like Gary Lightfoot's, I think it's been talked about before, Gary Lightfoot's guide to setting the brightness and contrast, setting up a projector. Same thing, uh, you go and have a look at that, read that. That's a great tool. You generally find it on the support forums for a lot of these video processors. You will probably find guides that will explain how to set them up. It's not like a, it's not like an instruction manual. It's more like, more of a, a sort of idiot's guide to video processing, you know, and uh, how to how to actually set up the parameters in the in the the scaler properly. What rather than that, you know, saying contrast control and beside contrast control in the instruction manual, it says adjust contrast. It'll say contrast control. Okay, to adjust the contrast, you need to put up this pattern from this disc, and when you adjust it, this is this is the artifact that you're looking for. So you actually have an understanding of what you're trying to do. And of course, you can always post a question on the forum and you'll probably find that someone like myself or somebody else will come along and try and answer it and explain the, the situation. And it doesn't really matter. You don't have to have a display which I've sold or a processor that I've sold to elicit a response. You know, We'll always try and help. And that's, that's the good thing about the forums. I think everybody genuinely tries to help out um so if people do have questions get yourselves over at the forums um do what gordon said there or if you want to send us an email to the podcast on uh, help at avpodcast.co.uk and uh, if we get a few questions we'll ask gordon to pop along again and we'll put them to him if that's okay with you gordon sure <laughs> just drop gordon in at the deep end there yeah it's <laughs> not a problem it's <laughs> not a problem i've got nothing better to do that evening. <laughs> Always happy to help is our Gordon. Anyway, just moving things on, just to end up this evening, um, I want to come back to something that John Dawson said a few weeks ago on one of the podcasts, and that was about playing the numbers game. Now, Gordon, a lot of people are using upscaling DVD players um, into their display devices, Mm. um, which obviously have their own scaling, and um, it seems to be introducing a lot of problems for people. So what would you, your advice be if people are using upscaling DVD into a display device that has its own scaling as well? It's one of these, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, every DVD player out there now, it seems, has to have some, has some sort of upscaling built into it. And 
there's there's two parts to it. The first part's the interlacing and the second part's the scaling and there are very well there are very few displays which are particularly good at deinterlacing in actual fact. Uh, so generally, uh, if you've got a half-decent DVD player, you're better off letting it do the interlacing. Scaling something different. There are, I can think of some uh, plasma displays, for instance, which I would say have got pretty poor uh, film detection uh, for PAL, but have actually got some pretty good scaling in them. So it, it's one of these things where you have to suck it and see. You have to uh, try interlaced out of your DVD player into your display, and you have to try progressive out of your player into your display and uh, also try upscaled. And for some top tips on discs to use to try and work out what to do, the uh, classic one uh, that I use a lot just now is Bridget Jones' Diary uh, number two. And if you put on the very last chapter of that disc, it's dead easy to find. Just go to the last chapter, press play, and you'll see Bridget getting into a taxi and the taxi drives through Piccadilly Circus. Look at the big Coca-Cola sign in the background that says Go Bridget, Go on it. And if you see lots of black banding in it, then you've got uh, something which isn't fantastic at uh, PAL film deinterlacing. At which point you want to try letting the deinterlacing be done somewhere else. So if you're playing it progressive out your DVD player and you get the black bands, uh, called, it's called a MOIR pattern. If you see that, then turn your DVD player onto interlace mode and plug it into your display and see if it does it better. If it doesn't do it better, then buy a video processor because most of them will do it properly. They might get it wrong a bit, but generally we'll get it right. But that's a, it's a very big artifact that you could be standing, you know, 500 feet away from your 42-inch plasma and you'll see that artifact. It's not, it's not something where you have to be standing a foot away from the display. So it's easy to see. Gordon, I want to thank you very much for popping along uh, this evening for this roundtable. Your input has been fascinating. I'll, obviously, uh, the other guys here are all fascinated as well because we haven't had um, we haven't had the, the the normal type of roundtable discussion. But I think it's because the uh, the material we've been talking about tonight is complicated to start with. But I think you've given us all a good footing, uh, especially the listeners, a good footing to get themselves into video scaling and. and start to understand the technology a little bit so thank yeah. you very much Gordon for, for coming along this evening, it's, uh, it's appreciated Thanks Phil, thanks Gordon That's yeah. alright, it is quite a complicated thing guys so I'm sorry if I sort of went on a bit you know, no, no, it's intriguing That's, no. that's nice to hear So John, we've had what um, Gordon's had to say this evening, it's always great to have an expert here to, uh, to give us the information that, that the listeners need, so what have you taken from tonight, um, which you maybe didn't know beforehand? Well, I mean, obviously, Gordon's um, info on, on, well, he's basically his talk was superb. It really gave a, an insight into his knowledge um, and obviously the complexity of what scalers and, and, you know, how the different sources like film, video, um, how we perceive them on, on the uh, displays that we use. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's because I've been using the scaler, because I've you've been using a video process now for a good few months, um, it's really sort of coming to light how important it is to have, you know, okay, the sound's good, but to have the two, the video as well, um, how important that is, and especially if you want that cinema experience. The the 48 hertz um, uh, topic, which was uh, obviously talked about in the NTSC uh, 60 hertz, it is quite um, prominent in that judder that you notice. Um, uh, another scene that is actually brings brings that to light is the Star Wars, the credits, um, if you see that um, on 
not correctly, it will judder. But you run it at 48 hertz smooth, it is just a perfect pan. It goes nicely across the screen, and it really does um, hit the hit the spot when you when you hear that being told to you by Gordon because of because of his knowledge and and to see it actually happen and watch it with a video processor and be able to control that is uh, it's an invaluable tool. It's superb. Okay, so all that leaves me to do is to thank our panellists tonight. First of all, Gordon Fraser from Convergent AV. Thank you very much, Gordon. John Carlo, Seth Gecko, and Robert Toomey. And we'll see you again next week for another roundtable. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie, thanks. This is the AV Podcast. If you have any questions for our panel guests on future roundtable discussions, or you would like to find out more about the subjects we've discussed this week and ask specific questions, then please email help at avpodcast.co.uk. That's help at avpodcast.co.uk and we will raise your questions and points in future episodes. If you have any questions regarding the calibration and setup of your system, problems with specific products, seeing artefacts which you don't understand, or any other AV-related problem, please feel free to email us and we will put the subject to the relevant experts for discussion. And if you have any ideas for subjects to cover in future roundtable discussions, Send that email in to us. This is your podcast and we want you to benefit from the help available from other forum members and industry personalities we invite to discuss topics on the round tables. That email address again is help at avpodcast.co.uk help at avpodcast.co.uk and we look forward to hearing from you. Jason. Thanks Phil and that wraps up another Home Cinema Podcast. Until next week, this is Jason Bradbury saying... Thanks for listening, stay subscribed, and tell your friends. The AV Podcast was presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.